This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, I think uh, we will go ahead and get started with our seminar, and as people trickle in, they'll catch up quickly. Is it all right if I stand down here instead of up there? You can see me okay. I'm not that tall, but I I do have a a laser pointer, and uh, I do want to be able to guide the discussion, so I don't want to be stuck up there and I can't touch the screen. So welcome to our seminar for the love of money, and it is a finance seminar, personal finance, and... uh, Before we go any further, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us safely to Phoenix for GYC 2017, the blessing that this convention has already been. We pray, Lord, as we spend the next uh, few moments, the next few seminar sessions, thinking about a very practical, relevant aspect of our lives. Give us wisdom from your counsels, from your word that we might glorify you even in this area of our lives. Teach us. Be with us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. You're all familiar with the title of the seminar, I believe, For the Love of Money. Anyone want to finish the rest of that verse for me? Is the root of all evil. Exactly right. 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's not money that's the problem. It's the love of money, right? That's the issue. And so that's why we have a whole seminar talking about this, because how do we deal with this thing called money and our relationship to it? Because if we don't get it right, we might fall into what's called the root of all evil. So the first seminar session here we are going to be talking about is called Prosper and Be in Health, a financial health message. This, one, this first hour is more of an overview, general principles, a framework through which we can evaluate financial decisions, and then starting the next hour, we're going to get really specific. Okay? And this particular hour, I'm going to be sprinkling through a little bit of a preview so you know what's coming ahead. So this serves as a framework. It also serves as an introduction to the rest of the other five hours. And I'll be uh, giving you some tidbits so you know what to expect and in what seminar sessions. So if you want to catch something else and there's something here that's interesting, you know when to come back. Okay? So hopefully this will be a helpful orientation, but also a practical, uh, principled-based seminar as well. So why should you listen to me? Like, who is this guy? What right does he have to tell me what to do with my money? Well, I'm not here to tell you what to do with your money. I'm here to share some principles, some of my own experiences, and you do what you want with your money. Actually, you'll find out later it's actually not your money, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. First of all, I am not a professional, so I'm not giving you investment advice, financial advice, legal advice, tax advice. I'm not here for that. It's a necessary disclaimer, so nobody sues me, right? But also, this is why I think I have something worth listening to, and that is I'm just like you. I have to live life. I have a job. I have a family. I have to pay the bills. I'm not a financial guru where I'm a professional at this, and I live in a different world, a different bubble. I'm in the real world, and I'm just sharing my personal experience. And perhaps most importantly, I'm not selling anything. Don't come to me asking me for financial advisement. I'm, I don't have a membership program. I don't have this DVD set. Just pay me $9.99 for three months, and I'll teach you how to be a millionaire. None of that. None of that. No book even, okay? I'll share with you my website. I have a free website. You can read it or leave it, right? No membership. You can, you can uh, take it or leave it. So uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of confidence. I have no conflict of interest here. I'm not trying to pump up some product or get you to buy something. Uh, But I do have some education that might be relevant for what it's worth. I have a business degree from Southern Avenue University. Uh, I also uh, was a math teacher. I taught high school and college math for a short while. And uh, let me tell you, the math is more important than the business. 
You don't need to have a business degree. You don't have to have an MBA in order to master your personal finances. But you do need to know how to do math. Adding, subtracting, decimals, fractions. Exponents might be nice. Uh, so I mentioned I went to school at Southern. I have my master's from Southern. But more importantly, I got my master's debt free. I'll be sharing that story, how that happened later on this hour. Also, something that might be interesting to you is my wife and I, we paid off our house in two years. Bought our house in 2013, paid it off two years to the day later. I'll be sharing that story with you this afternoon when we talk about debt. In 2015, so some numbers now. 2015, my wife and I had our baby in August. So the first half of the year, we were a two-income family, one-income family after the baby came. And these are our percentages. We spent our living expenses was 24%. We gave away 21%, and we saved 55% of our income. But of course, we had a baby. So what happened in 2016? The baby must have like nuked our budget, right? Well, we did uh, have some increased spending uh, by one whole percent. And by the way, this is not necessarily telling the whole story because in 2015, for half the year, we had two incomes in 2016, one income, three-member household all of a sudden, and we increased our spending by 5% or 1%, even though our income dropped by almost 50%. So you got to understand, uh, the percentages don't tell the full story. We also gave away 26%, and we saved 49%. And what's interesting to me, what I was very happy about, which was one of our goals, was that in 2016, for the first time, the amount we gave away was higher than the amount that we spent for ourselves. We're going to talk about that in a moment. There's a principle behind why we chose to do that. Um, but 2016 uh, was the first time we ever that we were able to do that. And 2017 is not over yet. But if you want to find out our numbers... Uh, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but we have a website, savingthecrumbs.com, the website and everything's coming on the next slide. But every year in January or February, we give an annual report of our financials. And not only do we give you our percentages, we actually tell you how much we earned. So if you are one of those you know, really curious people and you want to know how much money does this guy actually make, I actually tell you on the website. It's below the U.S. median income. I'll just tell you that. Household income, we're below the median. But um, 2017 is going to be coming out in about a month, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I'm curious. I haven't crunched the numbers. So we have uh, one income home. My wife stays at home, takes care of the baby. I work in a ministry. I work for Audiverse. You see my logo here. I have to represent. And ministry salary is a code word. You understand what the code word means? It means it's not much. We get a moderate income. Obviously, comfortable for me to be able to live a, a nice life, but you know, I am not a CEO of a Fortune 500 company with the golden parachute and million-dollar bonuses. No way. And of course, uh, you're like, you must have like a rich uncle, right? Or some uh, secret windfall. You won the lottery. Or uh, you must have a secret stash of Bitcoin somewhere. No, I am not a Bitcoin millionaire, and uh, we had no secret windfall, no special whatever. We do have parents that helped us through school. That was a huge blessing, both my wife and I. Uh, but no, nothing terribly out of the ordinary. We did this because, you know, in our, the normal way of working and budgeting and all that. Uh, but since I did bring up Bitcoin, and I sort of teased everyone about that, we're going to be talking about Bitcoin in the third session. So this afternoon, right after lunch, the seminar on investing, uh, we're going to be sprinkling uh, some Bitcoin-flavored tidbits all throughout that one. So if you want to hear about Bitcoin, that's the one to come to. So savingthecrumbs.com, uh, our website, this is the web address. Um, you can check it out. A lot of the information that we uh, share here is also available there in writing. And also, two years ago at GYC, <coughs> I did a six-part seminar called Beyond the Tithe, six hours, and a lot of the information, I would say about 50-50, 50% of the information is sort of repackaged, and we're going to be covering a lot of the, the basics again here, but we have some new information here that's not covered there, and there's information covered in this seminar that's not going to be covered here. So this is more like a part two to that part one, and... Uh, 
if you're a glutton for more punishment after the seminar and you want more, there's six hours more, okay? And I'll be sharing a little bit what I don't cover here that's found there uh, and also what we're covering here that we don't cover there. So if you want to get more information, I recommend that seminar, GYC. It's available on Audiverse and also on the GYC website. So let's get started with the body of our message. So first of all, I want to start with a quiz, okay? Let's get our, our brains going. Five-question quiz, true or false questions, right? So I'm going to need a little bit of feedback, and this will launch us into our topic for this hour. Question number one, I am financially responsible as long as I don't spend more than what I earn each month. Is this a true or a false statement? False? Anyone say true? Peer pressure is an incredible thing, right? Let's see what the Spirit of Prophecy has to say. In letter 41 in 1877, paragraph 7, to carefully reserve a portion of each week's wages and lay by a certain sum every week which is not to be touched should be your rule. So am I being financially responsible if I spend up to the last penny, like, of every month? No. Ellen White makes it very clear. The Spirit of Prophecy here says you need to save a surplus beyond what you're uh, using every month. Let's make it a little bit more specific. In Adventist Home, page 396, paragraph three, uh, paragraph 3, I have known a family receiving $20 a week to spend every penny of this amount, while another family of the same size receiving but $12 a week laid aside $1 or $2 a week, managing to do this by refraining from purchasing things which seem to be necessary but which could be dispensed with. So you notice LMI here is praising the uh, family that saves, versus the family who spends every penny. Okay, so the goal here is to have some extra. Now, this is very interesting. Is we, I want to look at the proportions here. Ellen White says she's comparing two families. One family makes $20 a week. The other family makes $12 a week. The family that makes $12 a week, how much are they saving? It says $1 to $2. But as a percentage of their income, what percentage are they saving? Okay. Let's do the math. $12, if you divide $2 out of 12, it's about 17%. $2 is about 16.6 repeating. So it's between 8 to 16, 17%. If you're making $12 and you're saving $1 to $2. So let's just multiply this percentage out. So what in today's numbers would that represent? If we're just rounding up to 17%, say, $24,000 in earnings a 17% savings rate would be about $4,000. $48,000 would be about $8,000. $80,000 were about $13,600. So just keeping this in mind, when Ellen White says, save uh, this family that earned $12, save $1 or $2, when we read that with our filter today, we say, oh, yeah, I can save $1 or $2. No problem. But when we multiply out the proportion to what the earnings would be today, we're talking about much larger sums. Okay? So the question is, are we saving for a $13,000 a year? Because that's actually what Ellen White is recommending, proportionally speaking. Okay? We're going to come back to this point a little bit later. But the point of the question is, am I being financially responsible simply by not spending everything? The answer is not quite. Living within my means means to have a surplus. So I paraphrase that statement with modern-day numbers. So let's read it again. I have known a family receiving $80,000 to spend every penny of this amount, while another family of the same size, okay, very good qualification there, receiving about $48,000, laid aside $8,000 a year, managing to do this by refraining from purchasing, and this is my paraphrase, gadgets, cars, clothes, music, entertainment, toys, etc., which seem necessary but which could be dispensed with. Does that make more sense now, what Ellen White was saying? So you notice this family made 80000 and spent every penny. This family of the same size lived on half, 40000 and saved the 8000 That's what Ellen White is recommending as far as financial responsibility. So what does it mean to live within my means? It means not spending more than what I earn now and also saving enough so I don't have to spend more than what I earn in the future. That's what it means to live within my means. All right, question number two. We can never be too liberal in giving to God's call for means. 
In other words, we can never give too much during the offering appeal. Okay, good. No peer pressure, nobody's saying anything out loud. How many of you think this is a true statement? Okay, we can never give too much. Good, all right, a few. How many of you think this is a false statement? And then there's about 50% who are like, just tell me the answer. <laughs> well, this was fascinating to me because look what Ellen White has to say. Letter 41, 1877, paragraph 10. You are in danger of being what? Too liberal when there is a call for means. And you realize the word liberal here is not liberal, conservative, you know, theological spectrum, cultural, whatever. We're talking about giving, right? The liberal uh, giving attitude. You, you might be too liberal. Why? She says selfishness has something even to do with this. Wow. We can give too much because we're selfish? What does she mean by that? You wish to be thought of as having plenty of means at your command. Ooh. So we're giving out of show. It's like the Pharisees. It's like they drop their coins as high as possible so they can make the biggest clank, right, in the, in the offering plate. Don't do that. But actually, she doesn't quite say don't do that. Notice Ellen White is very careful with her words. She says, and you also wish not to be behind others when there's a demand for means. This failing is not to be condemned. So she's like, if you want to give all your money, I'll take it. <laughs> unless, okay, there's a qualification. Unless you are liberal before you are just and do not quickly settle your just debts. What is Ellen White saying? This is my paraphrase of this last section. Giving more to God does not absolve us of failings in other areas of our Christian experience. Because guess what? This is the 500th year anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses. What was he railing against? Indulgences. And what are we doing when we drop like, okay, God, you know, I know I haven't been spending as much time in your word and I haven't been a good person. I'll just write you an extra check. That's the Adventist indulgence. That's salvation by works. I had, a, I, had a, I had a woman come to me once. She was in tears. And she said, my husband, we're like drowning in debt. I can barely put food on the table. And he's already giving a double tithe. He wants to give a triple tithe. Can you talk to him? So what this guy was thinking was, God will take care of my family as long as I just give him more money. But he wasn't going to work. He wasn't paying off his debts. He was stressing his wife out. And he was not performing his husbandly duties of taking care of his household. The Bible actually says if you don't take care of your household, you're worse than an infidel. And he was thinking that by giving more to God, it would counteract or like it would pay off the sins in other areas of his life. Look, as Adventists, we don't believe in salvation by works in any type of way, and that's a species of that kind of thinking. So is it possible to be too liberal to give in the call for means? Yes. Sometimes it is possible to give too much when it is as an excuse to not perform duties in other areas. And this whole seminar, this hour, we're going to talk about what the financial laws of health are that are going to help us know what those responsibilities really should be. Okay, so question number three, quiz question number three, true or false? Having insurance demonstrates a lack of faith in God's providence. Anyone, anyone think that's true? You know, it's easy to say that, but then um, when we look at how much health insurance costs, at least for those of us who live in the United States, if you're out of the United States, you're probably looking like, health insurance, what's that? But for us here in the United States, you know, it's a big deal. Uh, you look at how much it costs, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, well, <laughs> I'll just trust in God. <laughs> I'll have faith in God. I'll live the health message, right? We're going to talk about insurance in the next session, the one right after this. But notice what Ellen White has to say about insurance. Uh, this is actually Willie White, her son, remarking on what Ellen White has to say. This August 5, 1912, Willie White says this. We do not find in Mother's writings any condemnation of the practice of insuring a property against fire. Mother has always regarded this as very different from life insurance. And there's always questions about life insurance. We're going to talk about that next hour. She keeps her own buildings properly insured as an, and has encouraged some of our brethren having the charge of our institutions to do the same. So Ellen White, is she pro-insurance? Very clearly so. And that's, Ellen, I mean, all right, so let me go to the next slide. You must be thinking, but that's Willie White. That's not Ellen White. He's not inspired. Well, okay, let's see what Ellen White has to say. 
This Ellen White writing to Willie, letter 17, 1880. I wish you would see that the house at Healdsburg is insured. Talk to listen about it. I feel anxious in regard to it. Four years later, she says, Brother Palmer says he has written to you in regard to the insurance. If the house is not insured, it should be at once. So Ellen White insured her home. She is not against insurance, but she did have some statements about life insurance. I grant you that. So we're going to talk about that next hour. So insurance, uh, that was question number three. <coughs> question number four, investing is only for people who make lots of money. It's true or false? Wow. You sure about that? Does Ellen White have anything to say about investing? Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 330, paragraph two, uh, 3. Excuse me. This was a statement written, written to her nephew, a young man, F.E. Belden. You know him as the composer. You might have had, even from your limited wages, means in reserve for any demand, and might have been invested in a lot of land which would be increasing in value. But for a young man to live up to the last dollar he earns shows a great lack of calculation and discernment. So was Ellen White anti-investing? Clearly not. But qualification, does this statement now give us the liberty, the license to just go invest in anything and everything under the sun? No. Okay, so you got to understand what I'm saying. Ellen White encourages wise, prudent, careful, conservative investments, but... She's not giving us license to just go willy-nilly, do whatever we want. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about principles on investing right after lunch this afternoon. That's our, uh, and we'll be including Bitcoin in that discussion. All right, number five, last question. And this one will launch us into the rest of our seminar. God helps those who help themselves. Is this a true statement or a false statement? False? Okay, who says true? Okay, who says false? Okay. Let's see what Super Prophecy has to say. Okay, so before we go to this quote, actually, I might have spoiled it. There's a story, right, in the end of the book of Acts. Paul is going to Rome. He's on the ship with his companions, prisoners, and they set sail from Crete. He says, don't go, don't go. They get caught in a storm. They're fighting the storm for days. And you remember what happens? God sends an angel. God sends an angel to Paul and says, not one person is going to be lost on this ship. Not a single one. And Paul stands up and says to everyone, eat some food. You need some nourishment because none of you are going to die. Have faith in God. Notice what it says in Sketches from the Life of Paul, page 267, paragraph 1. At these words, after Paul explains what the angel told him, passengers and crew roused from their apathy and put forth all possible exertion to save their lives. There was much much yet to be done. Every effort within their power must be put forth to avert destruction. Wait a minute. An angel just told Paul, no one's going to die. And what is their response? They put every effort into saving their lives. Doesn't that sound contradictory? It's like, where's your faith, man? God just told you he's going to save you. Why are you saving yourself? Notice what she says. For God helps those only who helps themselves. I want you to understand this. We're not talking about salvation by works. We're not talking about us meriting anything from God. But we're talking about a principle of how God operates. God does not do for us what we can do for ourselves. He gives us the power. He gives us the counsel. He gives us the strength, the wisdom, the help, the support we need. But we make the choice. We make the effort. Let's elaborate this point even further. And this is going to build into the whole personal financial discussion because this is undergirding really the theme of a lot of what we're going to talk about this weekend. Prayer and effort, effort and prayer will be the business of your life. You must pray as though the efficiency and praise were all due to God and labor as though duty were all your own. If you want power, you may have it as it is awaiting your draft upon it. Only believe in God, take him at his word, act in faith and blessings will come. This is in reference to a couple of biblical principles. Faith without works is what? is dead. If I say I have faith and no works, I don't really have faith. So when we say, I believe God's word, I believe that he can help me get out of debt, but I'm just going to sit here and do nothing until God delivers me, you understand that that doesn't work. So let's, let's just illustrate this through analogy, okay? I think this analogy and this will tie into the uh, topic, the name of the seminar right now. You can train yourself to enjoy a healthful diet, she says, Review in Herald, February 10, 1910, paragraph 14. She's talking about the health message. 
Okay, so this statement is in the context of the health message. And we're going to tie it into personal finance in just a moment. So talking about the health, uh, a healthy diet, to give up meat, and to stop eating so much processed food, to cook for yourself, and all this stuff, right? The Lord helps those who seek to help themselves. And we can say amen to that. If I want to you know, eat a vegetarian diet, I have to put forth the effort to learn how to eat properly, to follow the eight laws of health and all those kind of things. But when men will not take special pains to follow out the mind and will of God, how can he work with them? The principle here is of cooperation, right? Just like in our health, with our financial health, it's the same way. We have to eat properly, exercise, rest, get sunshine, fresh air. We have to follow the laws of health. And God blesses us when we follow his ways with our money. It's the same principles. God gives us laws of financial health. As long as we follow them, God blesses us. Okay? But God helps those who helps themselves in this context. We have to put forth the effort. We have to follow the mind and the will of God and act out our part working out our salvation with fear and trembling. So that takes us to this verse, uh, 3 John, verse 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. So there are three things here. Prosperity, and clearly in the context, let's talk about material prosperity. Okay, Having the income to support the family and having your needs met. To be in health, to be healthy, and to have prosperity of spirit. These are the three things that uh, John wishes upon the church that he's writing to. And so we just talked about how do we be in health? It's by following the laws of health. I like New Start. It's very easy to remember. Eight laws of health. There are more. So I thought, wouldn't it be helpful if we can consolidate the general principles of financial well-being into the eight laws of financial health? Okay, so that's what this is. Eight laws of financial health. And here they are. Eight. This is not an inspired list. The principles are inspired. But this is a list that I uh, put together <coughs> using the principles that I've studied out. So numbers 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. So we're going to go through them each one very quickly. This is an overview, so we're not going to dwell on each one um, for long. But principle number one is ownership. It's not our money. God is the owner of everything. The Bible makes this very clear. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Everything belongs to God. We are merely his managers. Uh, Christ's Object Lessons, <coughs> page 351, paragraph 2. Some think that only a portion of their means is the Lord's. Usually they... We think that way about the tithe. 10%, yeah, I'll give God his 10%. The rest is mine. No. All 100% belongs to God. 10% just happens to be the dividends that we return to the owner. The 10% tithe is just a reminder that we are not the owners. When they have set apart a portion for religious and charitable purposes, they regard the remainder as their own, to be used as they see fit, but this is a mistake. We all we possess is the Lord's, and we are accountable to him for the use we make of it. This is GYC, so I'm not going to belabor this point. Okay? But the summary is simply this. We are managers of what he has placed within our care, and we are accountable to God for how we handle his money. This undergirds everything that we do, how we view our financial management. God owns it. Okay, so principle number two. Earning must work for food. <laughs> This one I'm going to spend a little bit more time on because I think it's important. Reviewing Herald, March 1, 1887, paragraph 9, says this. The desire to accumulate wealth is an evil, carnal, selfish aspect of our nature. Is that what it says? But isn't that frequently how we view it? Because we, we know the pull of greed. We know that it's bad. We hear about it on Wall Street and in the news. But what we're told here is that the desire to accumulate wealth is an original affection of our nature implanted there by our Heavenly Father for noble ends. God is the one who gave us the desire to prosper, to build, to innovate, to create, to earn, to gain. But we also have to remember Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, 452, Paragraph 4, that money is to be earned by labor. 
Every youth should be trained to habits of industry. So while God has given us the desire to accumulate wealth, he also tells us what's the proper way of, of gaining it. It's through labor. It's through work. Okay, we're going to talk about get rich quick and things like that when we talk about investing. But this is an undergirding principle. It is not a sinful desire to gain wealth. We have to make that very clear. Greed is bad. Covetousness is violating the 10th commandment. Yes, that's all right and true. But the desire to accumulate wealth comes from God. But to do it in the right way is to work. Okay. Well, even before sin. Genesis 2.15, and the Lord took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. God gave man work even when he didn't, quote-unquote, have to work. Genesis 3.19, after the curse of sin, in the sweat of thy face, thou shalt eat bread till thou return to the ground. After sin, we had to work. Working was correlated to having sustenance and food for our tables. Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians 3.10, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. I like that one. You don't want to work? Well, go hungry. So there's a very clear correlation in Scripture. If you want material possessions, if you want to supply your needs, work. Learn how to work. Be a good, diligent worker. Have a good work ethic. Show up on time. Give 100%. Learn how to make uh, other people value you as a part of their team. So much we can say about this, uh, but I guess I can't help myself. I, I have to say a few things. We're at GYC, right? We're young people. A few pointed statements regarding earning money and the youth. Avenue's homepage 387, paragraph 1. Money which comes to the young with but little effort on their part will not be valued. How true. Some have to obtain money by hard work and privation. But how much safer are those youth who knows just where their spending money comes from? Who knows what their clothing and food costs and what it takes to purchase a home? You can tell. The person who had to work hard and really scrimp and save, let's say they're buying a computer or a camera or a car or whatever it is, you can see the difference between the person who worked for it themselves and the person who got it for free. The one who worked for it is like out there like polishing that thing, right? It's like, nobody, don't breathe on my car. Other people are like, yeah, take it out. Doesn't matter if you crash it. Didn't cost me anything anyway. Let's take this one step further. Avenue's home, same page, 387, paragraph 3. There is such a thing as giving unwise help to our children. Speaking about college in particular. We're going to talk about college uh, when we talk about debt as well. But here I have to insert this. Those who work their way through college appreciate their advantages more than those who are provided with them at someone else's expense. For they know their cost. We must not carry our children until they become Helpless burdens. Ouch. You know, there's a book called The Millionaire Next Door. And they did some research on millionaires in the United States. And they found that the majority of millionaires in the United States are first-generation rich. Generally, they're immigrants. They come to this country with nothing. And they bootstrap. They work hard. They do the dirty job. They start their own businesses, many of them. They, they drive used cars. And they move up the social economic ladder. And by the time they have kids and they're in high school, whatever, they become upper middle class men. Well, I guess millionaires. I don't know if you're upper middle class. But they become millionaires and they live this affluent lifestyle. And so their kids grow up in this culture, this standard of living, so to say. But what happens is these parents, they think, by, uh, they think that in order for them to really provide for their kids what they should do is to prevent them from having to go through what they went through. I don't want you to have to work. Just study, especially in the Asian community. Just study. I'll, I'll, I'll do everything for you. You just study and go to Harvard, okay? Just, just do that. Be a doctor. And what happens is there's a, there's, a, there's a term, a phenomenon that these researchers call the economic outpatient care. What it is is these kids, they grow up, they go to college, and they are... They have no idea how to live. They don't know how to make money. They don't know how to work. They don't know how to take care of themselves. But they have been accustomed to this high standard of living. Okay? In modern day, it would be like, what do you mean I can't have the iPhone 10? It's only $1,000. Mom and dad always got me my phones. 
but I'm a college student, so I don't earn anything. So uh, mom and dad, you know, the new iPhone came out. You know, can I have one? And mom and dad is like, oh, yeah, of course. We've got to help our children, right? That's, how, that's what they think. Helping their children. Unwise help to their children. And so this economic outpatient care, what happens is that these kids grow up with a standard of living. Parents are subsidizing their lifestyle. And then they get, out of, they get out of school and they're still not able to make ends meet. They have to live in the certain lifestyle of the neighborhood. They don't earn that much money yet. And you know what happens? The first generation rich millionaire family, more often than not, the millionaires end after the first generation. The second generation are no longer millionaires because guess what? They never learned to work. They became helpless burdens. Economic outpatient care. And you know that uh, if you pay attention on social media much, this is somewhat of a millennial phenomenon. There is this concept of why should I have to work? I deserve this. So you have to give it to me. This kind of attitude is uh, contrary, let's just put it mildly, contrary to what we are told in the spirit of prophecy. Earning, the second principle here that we're talking about, financial laws of health, we have to learn how to work because God gave us work as a blessing and that's the means by which we uh, provide for our needs. We can talk more about this, but let's leave it there for now. We've got to move on. Principle number three, giving. It is a reminder that we aren't the owners. Uh, most of the time, when we talk about personal finance, we spend a lot of time talking about tithes and offerings and the stewardship components. Um, I'm being somewhat radical, and I am not talking about it at all in the next five hours. But there's a reason. It's because, uh, number one, I already talked about it in the last seminar two years ago. So if you want to find out more of what I have to say about tithe and offerings and the Spirit Prophecy Councils on some of those things, you're going to have to do some homework and go back and check that out. But the other reason is because it's an area that there are so many good resources within the church. I don't feel the need right now to reinvent the wheel, let someone else pick that up, and I'll focus on things that haven't been discussed. But regardless of that, I do want to share a couple of tidbits regarding this that shape my philosophy and how I view giving. So we talked already about how the tithe is simply a dividend that we return to the owner. It's not like, oh, here's your 10%, here's my 90%. No, it's here's a 10% dividend so that you know that all 100% belongs to you. Council of Stewardship, page 326, paragraph 2 says this, they, meaning the servants of God, should not allow the amount given to God to be disproportionately small when compared to that appropriated to their own use. So I mentioned earlier when I showed you my percentages, this quote is the reason why I was so pleased that we had finally reached a point where we had you know, trimmed our spending and managed our finances in such a way that the amount that we spend to live is less than the amount that we actually give. So now we give more than we spend on our own on our own expenses. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to go out and do this. I think it's a good goal to strive for, but this is not something that's reasonable for everyone to do right now. But I think this statement gives us the, the concept, like that's something that is worthwhile to uh, uh, achieve uh, through our budgeting and financial management. And we'll talk about budgeting and how that all works this afternoon. Another statement here, gives us some balance. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 156, paragraph 1. Brethren, awake from your life of selfishness and act like consistent Christians. The Lord requires you to economize your means and let every dollar not needed for your comfort flow into the treasury. So yes, on one hand, Ellen White is making it very clear, you need to give generously. But she gives this qualification, the dollars not needed for your comfort. So Ellen White is not saying, give God all your money. Wear rags. You know, eat dog food and live in a cardboard box. She's not saying that. Saying provide for the needs of your family, the comforts and uh, the conveniences of the home. But if you have a surplus, everything you don't need. Remember, God's work has needs. And if you have the capability, you should give. So these are some principles. And I'll just give you a little, <coughs> excuse me, a little teaser for the seminar I did two years ago on tithing and offerings, we know the 10%. Tithe, that's what it means, 10%. But Ellen White actually gives counts on how much we should give in offerings as well. 
And it might be surprising to you what that council is, but you're going to have to go and do your homework to find out what that, uh, those statements are. But suffice to say, right now, uh, for this seminar, we just need to remember disproportionate. The proportion, we should strive to give God more than what we spend for ourselves, even while recognizing God is not opposed to us providing for the needs and comforts and conveniences of our family. So we're going to continue on this theme. So let's talk about spending now, because spending really is the core of all this. If we can control our spending, we can manage a lot of the other things. So spending, do I really need it? Ellen White writes this, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 9, page 131, paragraph 1. My brethren and sisters, you must be willing to be converted yourselves in order to practice the self-denial of Christ. Dress plainly but neatly. Spend as little as possible on your, upon yourselves. Ooh. You know, we, we say this, we read this, and immediately we think, man, that's like harsh. Such a taskmaster. She's saying, spend as little upon yourself as possible? Well, Yeah. But it's not to say, let me make this point clear, spending as little as, pos- as possible upon yourself does not mean spending nothing on yourself. And it does not mean that you can't spend little and still have quality. You can still have a good standard of living, a good quality of life without spending a ton of money. So she's not saying, yeah, just you know, live without air conditioning and wash your clothes by hand and you know, go barefoot. She's not saying that. But we associate her with saying that. So, to back up what I'm saying here, tomorrow, okay, tomorrow's seminar, we're going to look at some very specific, concrete, tangible ways of how we can spend as little as possible upon ourselves while still living a comfortable standard of living. So it's like, if I can have an iPhone and not have to pay as much, how can I do it? Right? Those kinds of questions. How can I trim my budget while still maintaining my current standard of living? There are ways to do that. Smart, intelligent, easy ways. And tomorrow we're going to talk about that. And this afternoon we're going to talk about budgeting and how that uh, all plays into uh, this picture. So you want to come back. We're going to talk about specific ways of accomplishing this. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 4, page 511, paragraph 2. This one's a tough one. He also calls upon those of mature age, meaning God, to stop when they are examining a gold watch or chain or some expensive article of furniture and ask themselves the question, would it be right to expend so large an amount for that which we could do without or when a cheaper article would serve our purpose just as well? This is the tough one because substitute this gold chain or gold watch chain or some expensive article of furniture. Substitute it with what you will. Vacation to Paris iPhone 10, Tesla Model S. I don't know what it is. You fill in the blank. And she's saying, before you put that card, credit card number down, ask yourself the question, do I really need it? I've got two perfectly fine operating cars in the garage. Do I need this next car? My iPhone 7 is working just fine. Do I really need the face ID on iPhone 10. Do I really need it when it's just as good as what I have right now? We have to ask those questions, okay? But we do have the balancing statements. I want to be very clear about this. Ellen White also says, Adventist Home, page 379, paragraph 3, God does not require that his people <clears throat> should deprive themselves of that which is really necessary for their health and comfort, but he does not approve of wantonness and extravagance and display. So you see the, the balance here. She says, don't spend everything on yourself, but neither should you not spend anything on yourself. You should have health and comfort. Here's a good one, Adventist Home, 379, paragraph 2. We cannot make the heart pure or holier by clothing the body in sackcloth or depriving the home of all that ministers to comfort, taste, or convenience. Amen. Ellen White does not teach salvation through self-effacement or self-deprecation. That's also another form of Adventist penance or Adventist indulgence. We seem to think, oh, I'm holier because I live a more impoverished life. Listen, poverty is not the path to holiness. Riches is not the path to holiness either. Jesus makes that clear. It's difficult for a rich man to enter into heaven and all that. But neither does poverty grant us entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Just because we choose to be cheap doesn't make us better than anyone else, doesn't entitle us to more of God's favor. 
So we just have to remember the balance. Buy with quality, buy affordably, but do not spend so much that we are forgetting to give to God's work. All right, principle number five. We've got to keep moving here. Debt. This one is pretty simple to, to grasp. What should we know about debt? Get out and stay out. That's it. Okay, we're going to talk about debt this afternoon. We'll talk about student loans, how to buy a car without, uh, without a loan, and uh, how we paid off our house and all that. But these two statements, I think, will suffice for now. Proverbs 22.7, the borrower is servant to the lender. In some translations, it's slave. And we are told no man can serve two masters. Particularly in the last days, we have to be very mindful about being indebted to a lender when God is calling for our full allegiance. Adventist Home, page 393, paragraph 4. Be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run in debt. This has been the curse of your life, getting into debt. Avoid it as you would the smallpox. So it's slavery, it's smallpox, neither very appetizing things to consider. Ellen White says, get out of debt, stay out. However, I will mention this, and a little teaser for this afternoon. Ellen White borrowed money. She had debt. So was she a hypocrite? Was she going contrary to her counsel? Well, this afternoon we'll talk about rules for acceptable debt. When is it actually okay and all that. So you have to come back for fourth session this afternoon for that. Okay, number six, principle number six, financial health law number six, investing and saving. <clears throat> we need to provide for the future. Councils on Stewardship, page 250, paragraph two. Had you and your wife understood it to be a duty, okay, that's a strong word, a duty that God enjoined upon you to deny your taste and your desires and make provision for the future instead of living merely for the present, you could now have had a competency and your family have had the comforts of life. There's that term again comforts of life. So it is appropriate to save up in order for our families to have some comforts. But the point here that I'm trying to make is when we think about investing and saving, Ellen White's counsel is it's a duty to make provision for the future. Go to the ant thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. And uh, you know, sometimes we have this I don't want to sound too harsh but the term I think of is magical thinking. We don't believe in magic, but somehow we think that by believing in God that somehow magically he will provide for our needs. It's the same thing as a financial health. We think, okay, if I believe in a health message and I believe in God, somehow he will just magically improve my health without any effort on my own. Well, guess what? That's not how it works. There's laws of nature, laws of health, laws of cause and effect. And in our financial health, it's the same way. We can't expect God to provide miraculously for us when we do not follow the counsel he's already given. His counsel is, you make your best effort to follow the duty of making provision for the future and trust in me and I'll take care of you. But if you're not making any effort, you're saying with your mouth, but your, your actions show that you don't really believe. Faith without works is dead. Okay, so let's put forth the effort. Do what we can and trust God to make up the lack. So this one is very interesting, continuing on the theme of saving and investing. So Ellen White here makes this statement in Avenue's home, page 396, paragraph 2, talking about how much to save. Okay, so how much should we be saving? Every week, you should lay by in some secure place 5 or $10, not to be used up unless in case of sickness. With economy, you may place something at interest, okay? Placing something at interest means investing. There's no other way to put it. With wise management, you can save something after paying your debts. And this statement was made in <coughs> 1884. So let me ask you this question. How many of you think that you can save five or $10 a week? Is that pretty, pretty reasonable? Pretty simple, right? Five, $10 a week. But when was the statement written again? 1884. Did the value of 5 to $10 change, you think, from 1884 to today? You understand the principle of inflation, how it works, right? So this, what I thought was interesting, because we read this statement, we're like, $5, $10? Yeah, psh, no problem, I can do that. Is that really what she meant? Like, did people read that? Five or ten dollars? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. No problem. Or was she actually talking about a larger sum? Okay, so let's take a look. Let's take a look. So I looked at an inflation calculator in, uh, online 
to, to run the numbers. So in 1884, $5 to $10 per week would be $20 or $40 per month, or $240 or $480 per year. Okay, so we look at those numbers today with today's numbers, and we're like, yeah, no big deal. But what did these translate into in 2017? Okay, let's take a look. Five to ten dollars becomes 120 to 240 dollars a week, which means 480 to 960 per month, 5700 to 11,500 per year. Does this give a little bit different flavor to Ellen White's counsel? When Ellen White says save five to ten dollars a week, she's not saving. She's not saying let's just save a quarter or like ten cents. She is talking about actually saving a lot. She's not just saying, yeah, just put away whatever crumbs you have. She's talking about a large sum. But you remember, that's not all she said. She said you should put away 5 to $10 a week, but with the economy, you can place something at interest. So let's add that to the picture. What would that look like if we added interest to it? So place something at interest, and I'm going to, before I show you the chart, I use an 8% rate of return primarily because that is the rate of return for the stock market at large, S&P 500, for the past 100 years or so. So 800 or 8%, if you get an S&P 500 index fund in your retirement account or something like that, that's where the 8% comes from. And this is what the numbers turn out to be in 30 years. So if I was saving $5,700 a year for 30 years at 8% interest, at the end of 30 years, I would have $700,000. If I'm saving $11,500 in 30 years, I would have $1.4 million. If we just follow Ellen's counsel, and I'm not saying you have to get 8%. You realize I'm using 8% because that's market returns over a long period of time. But even 5%, 3%, you can understand that with the compounding interest and the continual saving of what she said, just a mere five, ten dollars a week, right? I say that in quotes. We would have a significant amount of money saved up for emergencies, health expenses, retirement, and for returning back to the work of God. And let me just make this one point. We're at GYC. We have all these calls for missions, calls for missionaries and people to work in ministry. Look, I work in ministry right now and I'm still able to save. And over a long period of time, or even if you're in a profession where you make a lot of money over a short period of time, you can put away money at interest so that you never have to fundraise for your missions again. Do you understand this? And we're going to talk about the principle of self-reliance in the next, next seminar session. But can you imagine if we have self-funded, tent-making missionaries that do not require constant fundraising efforts? All of a sudden, God's work takes a different dynamic, doesn't it? Young people can, instead of being saddled with debt, young people with wise investments, wise savings, conservative uh, portfolios can go out and work without the requirement of constantly asking for money. Just a thought to put into your mind. And all of this by simply following the counsel that we've been already given. Save up, invest, put something in interest. So is Ellen White anti-investing? Clearly not but within the context of using that to propel God's work, not to get filthy rich. Okay, we have to be very clear about that. Okay, principle number seven, legacy. We need to make a lasting difference. I'm just going to make two points on this. There's a lot of material available uh, on this point already. But Councils on Stewardship, page 325, paragraph one. It is utter folly to defer to make a preparation for the future life until nearly the last hour of the present. It is also a great mistake to defer to answer the claims of God for liberality to his cause until the time comes when you have to shift your stewardship upon others. Simply put, make your wills while you are still healthy. Put an estate plan in place so that the final act of your stewardship is not going to get passed on to the state or have someone else handle the distribution of the assets that God has given to your management. Because remember, God gave you this money to manage for him. He's still going to hold you accountable even after you're dead in the judgment, when it comes up, he's going to look at the records and he's going to say, was he a faithful steward in his last act of legacy? So the, the simple principle here is make a will or a trust or whatever it might be, an estate plan. Okay? And there are a lot of resources. You go upstairs, every large nonprofit, Avenus Ministry will have probably a trust services department and they'll help you with that. 
Another statement here on legacy about children, in particular, Abner's homepage 390, paragraph 1. The very best legacy which parents can leave their children is a knowledge of useful labor. There's that, there it is again. We just talked about this. Children should learn how to work. That's the best legacy. And the example of a life characterized by disinterested benevolence. By such a life, they show the true value of money. It is only to be appreciated for the good that it will accomplish in relieving their own wants and the necessities of others and in advancing the cause of God. There's a statement that Ellen, um, I almost call him Ellen White. No, Warren Buffett. He is not inspired. Warren Buffett says something. I don't agree with everything he says, you realize. But one thing he said that had a good ring to it that I think harmonizes with this. He says, as far as inheritances go, because he's one of the wealthiest men in the world, he says, leave your children enough that they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. I think that's very practical. And in our context, I don't even think that has to do with money. You don't have to leave children lots and lots of money if they have special needs or whatever and they're young. Yeah, I understand. But teach them how to work. Give them a good Adventist education Teach them how to fend for themselves, how to work for God, and that is the absolute best inheritance you can give your children. And guess what? The best inheritance above all is an inheritance in the heavenly kingdom. Raise them to serve and love Jesus. So the best legacy for your children is not to give give them tons of money so they can just sit around and be trust fund babies, but teach them how to work. All right? So this is a recurring theme, you realize. Uh, So principle number eight, trust in God. So at the end of New Start, right, eight laws, of financial, or eight laws of health, we end with trust in God. And in the health context, the reason why we mention that is because it doesn't matter how well we follow the laws of health. Ultimately, it's up to God to make up the lack. We live in a sinful world. Our best efforts amount to nothing. In the financial realm, it's similar. We can do our best to get out of debt, work hard, you know, uh, take care of our families and invest. But bad things happen. Emergencies happen. Things may still go wrong. And that's where we have to remember where our trust lies. We are not to trust in riches. We are not to trust in our investment portfolio. We do those things not because they're going to save us. We do those things because we are following the counsel that God has given. But realize, at the end of the day, if it doesn't work out, we have a God in heaven who we uh, commit our trust to. So, uh, an experience that I had about this is when uh, I was going through graduate school. So my wife and I, <coughs> we were just married in 2010, and I was starting a graduate program at Southern in January of that year. And uh, I was looking for work. We had decided that we wanted to go through, get my master's degree debt-free as far as possible. So I was willing to work. She already got a job, and I was hunting for a job that I could do while I was in school. Nothing. Just Everything was coming up blank. No response, no interview, nothing. And so I was already a week into my semester, and I'm thinking, oh, great. We hadn't even rented a place. We had a friend who let us stay in their basement until we figured things out, and we didn't know what apartment we could afford because we didn't know how much money we were going to bring in, and, we were, and I was trying to do homework, and I was so distracted, and all of this. And it was cold in January, and so here we are. Let's put a pause on this story and let's rewind back to the previous summer. So it was the summer of 2010. And you remember that was GC session in Atlanta, Georgia in 2010. We were visiting some family in Ohio, Ohio, and we were driving down through Collegedale Southern to go to Atlanta for the GC session. And I decided to stop by uh, the business school at Southern to take care of some paperwork, meet my advisor, things like that, because I was going to start in January. So I walk into the office, the business department office, and I was talking, and across the, across the room, someone shouted, hey, you, hey, you, I know you. And an elderly gentleman came running over to me and my wife, my fiance at the time, and he said, were you two driving in a white car on Interstate 75 heading south yesterday, around 2 o'clock in the afternoon? I'm like, what? Who are you? We said, yeah, that was us. He said, oh, you wouldn't believe this. My wife and I, we were in the car, we were on the freeway, and we looked at your car, and our license plate cover, it said Loma Linda. That's where I'm from originally. And my car had the little license plate cover. It said Loma Linda, and they looked at that, and they looked at us, and they said, those young people look like Adventists. And I bet they're going to the GC session in Atlanta. 
So it pays to look Adventist, right? <laughs> whatever, whatever that means, whatever that means. But this gentleman, he looked at me, and he, he, he looked at me and my wife, and he was like, yeah, you know, that, that was amazing. My wife and I, we were just talking about you guys, and we remembered you, and now here you are in my office, and you're going to be one of my students. Wow, isn't this amazing? So we did the paperwork. We walked out of the office, and my fiancé at the time, my wife now, we looked at each other, and we said, that felt like a divine appointment. We don't know why, but something about that, like, that's so odd. Turns out that that gentleman was the dean of the School of Business. Now retired, but uh, he was there at the time. And uh, that's right. I just found out. He came out of retirement. He came out of retirement. Dr. Don Van Ornum, he's a friend. So he came out of retirement. He's at Weimar now. So at any rate, I came back to school in January, and I was in this dark, cold basement. And I still remember I was doing accounting homework. It's like, how much more depressing can life get? Don't have a job. Don't know where I'm going to live. I'm in school. I don't know how I'm going to pay it off. And I have to do accounting homework in a cold, dark basement. So I was sitting there, and then an email came in from the dean of the School of Business. One line, have you found a job? I responded so fast, you wouldn't believe it. I said, no, I have not. He wrote back. He said, please come to my office right now. So I said, great. Great excuse not to do homework. So I went in his office, and long story short, there was a graduate assistant position opened, uh, working for him particularly, and I was the first name that came to his mind. Now, why do you suppose he remembered me? God placed us next to each other on the interstate six months earlier, heading to the GC. <laughs> Trust in God, people. We do the best we can, but you've got to understand something. Did I have to work? You better believe I had to work. I didn't have any vacation. Our semester was this long. I had to work these number of weeks before and these number of weeks after, which meant no vacation. I had to extend my program because I couldn't work so many hours and take so many classes, so it took a little bit longer. We had to live in a small apartment. We had to make some compromises, some choices, but because we were willing to go through the first seven of these financial laws of health, when we came to point number eight, God said, here you go. Have at it. Work hard. I'll bless you. So remember, whatever the mountains might be in your life financially, maybe it's debt, maybe it's some sort of other financial need that you have, your house or family issues or whatever, trust in God. Do the best you can. Follow the laws of health that he's given to us and put the rest in his hands. He will take care of you. So let's uh, finish up here. We have, um, oh, I guess I turned this thing off. We have eight laws of financial health. Ownership, earning, giving, spending, debt, investing, legacy, trusting God. And I thought, New Start is so nice. It's so easy to remember. Wouldn't it be great if we could make a nice acronym to remember this, a mnemonic, right, to fix it in our minds? So I said, oh, let's take a look at the, let's take a look at the first initials. Hmm. Yeah. No. I don't think that's going to work. So I took these letters and I put it in a little anagram solver online. And so I said, let's see what it comes up with. Here's the first option. Goldiest. Is that, is that even a word? But um, it's got the word gold in it, so it must be you know, somewhat relevant, right, I thought. But then I realized, hey, if I just switch these two letters... Ah, ooh. <laughs> all right, so here's what I came up with, all right? A mnemonic to help fix these eight laws of financial health into our minds. Let's see if it works for you. So the eight laws of financial health helps us to use our money in the godliest way, not to have the goldiest grave. You like that? Sort of, I know it's corny. It's, it's cheesy, uh, but if it works, if you remember it, then I've done my job, okay? So the eight laws of financial health helps us to use our money in the godliest way, not to have the goldiest grave. So we, our goal is not to be the richest man in the graveyard. Our goal is to give glory to God, amen? And so that brings us to the conclusion of seminar session number one. Let's bow our heads for prayer as we take a break. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us this hour for your 
clear principles and guidance on how to manage your money. Because truly, it is all yours. We are merely your managers. Give us wisdom, Lord, and help us when we hit roadblocks, when we do our best and it's not enough. Lord, you are more than able to make up the lack, but help us to be faithful in giving our best effort to follow your will closely. Guide us in the rest of the seminar and the rest of GYC, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.